Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. The global pandemic has sped up the use of digital in no bigger way than in digital and mobile finance. According to the World Bank, pre-pandemic numbers, around 230 million people working in the private sector globally got paid in cash and were effectively unbanked. So today I'm joined by Snigda Ali and Maria May, who are going to take us on a journey of why being unbanked is such a serious inequality issue and how digital financing can create economic empowerment, particularly for women around the world. Snigda and Maria are both part of the Gates Foundation. Snigda is the Programme Officer for Bangladesh at the Gates Foundation and manages the country portfolio for advancing financial inclusion with a special focus on increasing women's access to financial products and services. Prior to joining the foundation, she worked as a senior gender and research consultant at the World Bank, as well as leading teams pushing for organisational gender mainstreaming at the charity BRAC. Sigda co-authored the book titled Voices to Choices, Bangladesh's Journey in Women's Economic Empowerment, which was published in 2019. Whilst Maria May leads the Gates Foundation's efforts to accelerate impactful usage of digital finance services by unbanked and low-income people globally, she spent seven years with BRAC in Bangladesh, where, amongst other things, she led the R&D team for microfinance programme and oversaw the launch of BRAC's Innovation Fund for Mobile Money, which incubated pilots such as digitising school fees, emergency cash transfers and saving deposits. During our conversation today, Sigda and Maria are going to deep dive into all things digital finance and economic empowerment for women. While the Gates Foundation Financial Services for the Poor team works globally, given that Snigda and Maria's deep experience lie in Bangladesh, we'll focus much of our discussion there. Together, they are going to explore why digital payments have been a lifeline for some of the most vulnerable people during lockdown, how mobile payments can really unlock opportunities for women to be part of the formal economy, but also they are going to present us with the challenges that still surround creating gender equity. So Snigda, Maria, welcome. Thanks, Katie. Happy to be here. Likewise. Oh, it's great to have you both. I wanted to open our conversation today around why. Why has the Gates Foundation focused on financial inclusion as a key pillar for its women's economic empowerment program? Well, Katie, if we are looking at women's economic empowerment, there have been quite a lot of strong evidence from a variety of countries across diverse kinds of interventions that suggest that access to digital financial services promotes women's economic empowerment, both by increasing 
say, women's bargaining power within the households and more generally enabling women to realize their own preferences in terms of money management, work, purchasing choices, consumption choices, etc. Economic theories also suggest a variety of more specific mechanisms through which uh, digital financial services may impact women's economic empowerment or we, about which we have varying levels of evidence. For example, um, research finds that uh, digital financial services or DFS in short, expands the breadth of women's support networks and expedites the speed of transfers received during periods of crisis or acute needs, like the one that we are still experiencing, the pandemic. DFS empower already working women to shift to more productive occupations and enable non-working women to enter the labor force. A study in Kenya shows that over the course of eight years, an increase in mobile money measured by increases in agent density led about 185,000 female-headed households to switch into business or retail as their main occupation. These households also increased their consumption by 18.5%, and the share of female-headed households living in extreme poverty decreased by 21%. I'll cite another example from India. A study on women's participation in a work program shows that women who received a bank account, direct deposit earnings into that account, and training on um, how to use that account are more likely to engage in the labor market than those without that direct deposit account or that direct deposit systems. And these direct deposits and trainings enabled women whose husbands subscribe to the existing gender norms, which kind of is restrictive towards women, to improve their labor force participation compared to similarly constraining women without direct deposit access. And it's not only just the financial inclusion aspects, but the foundation also have a gender equality division who also works on an, say, integrated or holistic approach for um, identifying and addressing gender inequality globally. Wow, that's some pretty hefty stats. And for anybody listening, I'll um, put links into the words that sit alongside the podcast so that you can follow up with some of those um, examples that Sigda, you've very kindly shared with us just now. Now, I, I know that you particularly worked around sort of digital finance in locations like Bangladesh. And I was just wondering, why is digital finance so important in locations such that? So besides women's economic empowerment, we also have evidence that suggests that digital financial services improves governance as well. There have been some positive impacts on governance in terms of efficiency, transparency, and other um, improvements, say infrastructure, and et cetera. For example, again, citing the example of uh, the very recent global crisis that's been going on, G2P or government to person payments in Bangladesh through mobile financial services, it dispersed at a time when all the other mechanisms were kind of shut down on hold. And during that crisis, the the stimulus package that the government offered for the most vulnerable population in Bangladesh could not have reached that population if it were not through the mobile financial services. In other words, they established, you know, digital financial 
system that we had. I think it, the MFS providers disbursed about um, 142 million for 5 million families. And it's not only the crisis dependent stimulus packages or government to person packages. The government also disbursed stipends under the primary education stipend project into 10 million accounts. And just this this year's April, the government announced an Eid gift, you know, the one of the major religious festivals that is very important in a Muslim populated country like Bangladesh. So the government announced an Eid gift for about 3.3 million citizens, again, through the mobile financial services. And in 2021, the government announced a new financial packages about 0.37 billion US dollars to help low-income groups recover from the pandemic. And besides this, uh, what we have seen is that utility payments made through MFS increased by 3.6 times just in two months between April and June of last year. Because when the economy was kind of going under lockdown, there were some growing concerns that uh, how to pay the bill and how to access um, all the all the system that was in place. However, when the markets reopened, and um, during that time, during that lockdown time, people started paying digitally, which were traditionally been paid through cash. But because of the lockdown, the customers, the clients started paying it digitally. But when the markets reopened from the lockdown and much of the panic subsided, the utility bill payments through MFS did not really decline significantly meaning that once people had to avail and they had a, you, you know, kind of a, they became comfortable, they got the hang of it, they realized the convenience and the value in it. So just kind of within your question, I wanted to focus a little bit on why digital finance, because I think that's one of the big trends we've seen in the last 10 years. And if you look around the world, there's a, you know, billions of people who don't have access to financial services. They have no type of account. And we see that as a fundamental barrier to moving out of poverty. Technology, and I'd say particularly the increasing ownership of mobile phones, which we see around the world, has created a new way for financial service providers to offer very low-cost financial services um, to families that they couldn't serve before. And if you think about you know, what are some of the basic services that family needs, they need a safe place to keep their money, they need a way to uh, move funds often between family members during emergencies. And so these are some of the basic services that mobile financial services can provide. And I think Bangladesh is an incredible success story on how quickly that change can take off when the need is there and it's being well met. Just to give some numbers, in 2011, only 31% of adults in Bangladesh had any form of financial accounts that were regulated. The latest survey, which was conducted in 2017, found that 50% of adults in Bangladesh now had an account and almost all the growth was due to mobile money accounts. So I think that shows you kind of the ability of that type of account to reach people who hadn't before. On the global level, since 2011, we've seen about 1.2 billion people come into accounts uh, that didn't have them before. There are still 1.7 billion unbanked people in the world. So the work's not done, but I think that just is a testament um, to how powerful some of these new models are in terms of reaching people who previously weren't served. And Maria, I wanted to pick up on that. The story's too good to be true. It yeah. just sounds makes so much sense. And yet when you say, you know, 1.7 billion people are still unbanked, what are the challenges and how potentially can we overcome them with regards to digital finance? Because 
you know, as you say, when lockdown happens, when you're just trying to get money straight into the direct hands of those who need it, yep. when you're trying to unlock empowerment, it's so useful. But where are those challenges? How can we overcome them? Yeah, it's, that's a great question, Katie. And so I think I'd answer, I, I, there's kind of two parts of that. And one is like, is this too good to be true? And I would say, I mean, obviously like I work on this, so I'm a real believer. I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but I, I think the evidence speaks for itself too. And there's a, you know, Snigda mentioned some of the studies we've done, but this is a, really a global and very robust set of evidence we now have about the value of uh, digital accounts, especially for low-income households. So just to cite maybe maybe two, three quick studies, and then to really get into what some of the remaining challenges are. So first, um, there's some great research that, that comes out of Bangladesh that looks at what happened when people who migrate to urban areas start digitizing their remittances to their families in the villages. And just simply from that digitization, we see a 26% increase in the amount of money they're able to send home. And that results in 8% increase in consumption. So food consumption and other things um, in their families back in the villages. You move to Mozambique, very different context. During an emergency, places that had mobile money, we saw 210% greater value of remittances and 40% higher consumption compared to regions that didn't have mobile money. Right. And so th- these are huge benefits, right? I mean, this is, these are, you know, I, I really do think that this is, is life changing for many families. Just one other example I wanted to, to point out comes from Uganda. And there, this is simply the digitization of the disbursement of microfinance loans to women. And what they found is simply by giving the money digitally instead of in cash, women were able to invest 11% more business capital and make 15% higher profits from their businesses. And and there's some speculation that this comes from women's ability to control that money and to really channel it into their business. So lots of benefits once you have an account, you know how to use it, you're able to meet your needs with that. Some of the biggest challenges we see is that not everyone is able to get an account. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Some of the kind of the basic building blocks I would call out are the lack of ID national ID that a lot of people face that keeps them from being able to get any sort of account. For people who don't own a phone or share a phone with other family members, that can be a really big barrier. In some countries, internet connections required for mobile money. And in a lot of rural areas, there aren't agents or kind of accessible financial access points that make this convenient. And I would just kind of note on on many of these things, there is a gender component, which we could go into more depth. But you know, as you start to kind of tick off these different uh, risks of exclusion, you very quickly find that women are often much more likely to be excluded as you go digitally than men because of all these other pre-existing inequalities. I might add normative barriers, uh, hmm. the pre-existing social and cultural um, strictures and structures that that also plays a role for women to kind of lag behind. It certainly makes lots of sense. And I I wanted to sort of then switch up a gear a little bit in terms of, so clearly there are barriers to be overcome. There's lots of opportunities. If, you know, as a sort of bit of a trend setter or a bit of a kind of visionary, what do you think are the kind of next, next big things that we should be expecting to see through the sort of mobile money work and the, the opportunity to include other people. I've, I've heard some noises around wage payments, for example. So in terms of wage payment, there's been a, we've been partnering with a grantee in Bangladesh about wage digitization 
for the garment workers. And as we know, garment industry is right now the biggest export industry in Bangladesh. And lots of women work there. And what we have seen is that through that project that's been going on, that wage digitization has brought some wonderful results, like access to financial products and services that meet the garment workers' needs, such as savings accounts and remittances, again, um, sending money during crisis or even otherwise. It also increased confidence about their future financial health. It increased convenience and time-saving through access to mobile financial services. It also increased participations in decisions. So we are looking at differences that kind of cuts across um, many dimensions. It is also contributing not only to a more efficient, less time-consuming or production time-saving aspect, it is also seeping through inside the household's dynamics where household decision-making, maybe control over household resources, it's impacting in different ways. At the same time, looking at maybe, I would say, human capital in terms of their increased confidence about their future financial health. So there's short-term positive impacts that we're seeing, which is also indicating towards a longer-term positive impact. So digitization, wage digitization, payment digitization can really be the way to go. And I would just add on there that, you know, Digital wages can be a tool for transparency and for monitoring and kind of ensuring that a lot of the other things that we think are really important to workers are in place. And so we're also working with the International Labor Organization, the ILO, to think about how digital payments can support decent work. So really thinking about, are people paid fairly? Are they paid on time? Are the working conditions safe? Is there compliance with labor laws? And so that's work that ILO's really looking at the successes from some of the the work that Snigla described in Bangladesh and thinking about how that can be applied in a lot of other countries. They work very closely with a number of companies directly. And then also the Better Than Cash Alliance, uh, which sits at the UN, has brought together brands like Gap and Inditex to also think about how they can use kind of their influence as big buyers to work with suppliers and kind of use digital wages as a, as a key tool to achieve some of their social goals. Oh, sounds like exciting times. And uh, again, if you're listening to this podcast and any of that resonates with you, I will put the links to that work into the words that sit alongside it. And please do follow up. I'm sure that there are lots of opportunities around increasing the op- the, the way that those digital payments, the wage payments um, are getting through and, and, and how. I want to turn a little bit to advocacy now because you mentioned there a number of different organisations, say whether it's the ILO, whether it's some of the corporates that you're working with and others to really scale this, to really deepen impact and understanding. I was wondering, you've worked on sort of developing a collaborative advocacy partnership in some respects. Could you share a little bit more about this and why it's important, but also how businesses might be able to get involved? Yeah. So so just maybe a, a few thoughts here, really kind of thinking about how businesses can work with other stakeholders uh, to make this happen and kind of the importance of, of that uh, multi-sectoral work. I think one thing that really came out clearly during COVID was that agents, so the people who kind of sit in the villages and act as human ATMs in a lot of ways, that they needed a lot of support during COVID to be able to keep cash moving into villages. 
And there are great examples from Bangladesh and a lot of other countries of companies that really dug in and put in a lot of extra effort to make sure that those services were maintained and that people could count on them. One of the other challenges that we hear about routinely in everything from wage digitization to uh, government cash transfer programs is that a lot of people struggle to open accounts or if they have any account challenges to be able to access effective customer service. And so I think there's some really great examples of um, financial service providers who have worked with the government programs and with the different employers to provide these services, for example, on site at an employment area or to use kind of the employer's own data on workers to put together these accounts. And so we've seen this be very transformative, for example, in some of the work that the WHO is doing for paying vaccinators and polio campaigns and in places where they're able to work quite quite closely with the providers themselves to onboard the workers into new accounts. It's really streamlined that and made it a lot easier for them to be able to access digital payments. And adding on to Maria's points, I would like to also mention that advocacy is really important in countries like Bangladesh. And by advocacy, I mean both at the policy level or in the regulatory space, but also at the grassroots level. Because when we talk about women's economic empowerment or reducing the gender gap in different sectors, we need to be mindful of not only the designing or proper interventions or the collaborative or concerted efforts, et cetera, to maybe build a better infrastructure and, and such, but to also create an enabling environment for those initiatives to really come to life, like to really work. So we need to work on the grass at the grassroots level to maybe campaign for better financial literacy, better awareness, et cetera, and try to also see how we could maybe address some of the normative barriers, which um, creates obstacles for women to access many of the services that's there, in addition to what we need to do in terms of really advancing our DFS mandate in Bangladesh. Well, watch this space, everybody. (laughs) We need to get active and we need to get collaborating um, and working together. And I wanted to Turn a little bit to the future now and to what you guys are seeing as activists, as people actively developing and delivering this on the ground. What do you see um, are the sort of the, the trends in terms of how the world has changed, particularly since we've had a global pandemic and we're still in the throes of it, but also where you perhaps see us going into the future? What, what, what are the top trends that you're seeing? Yeah, I'll I'll kick off with a few thoughts. I mean, I think one of the surprises for us during COVID was just the level of appetite that governments brought to digital payments um, and their willingness as regulators, as policymakers, to really start to think about how to get people access to accounts quickly, kind of seeing them as an emergency lifeline. And so, you know, and, and you know, there's uh, research that, for example, the World Bank and others have done that showed that in countries where there were high levels of kind of ID ownership, kind of financial accounts and good social registries, they were able to move money much faster to vulnerable populations in places that didn't have that infrastructure. And I think that recognition in governments across the world means that we're now going to see probably a lot more investments in some of that key financial infrastructure that enables financial inclusion to flourish and to people to really be able to access accounts. So I think that's really exciting. I think a second trend that we saw 
that will be interesting to see kind of how it continues to evolve is on the cash transfers themselves and the way that governments use these as part of their kind of policy interventions. During COVID, about 1.7 billion people lived in households that received a government payment. And that's double what it was before COVID. And, you know, and in a lot of cases, for example, in Brazil, we saw about 30 million people opened a financial account to receive a payment. In Colombia, another 1 million. And so, again, it's hard to say kind of how that trend will continue, what that means in terms of both the government relationship with citizens, kind of the way they think about targeting and providing cash transfers. But I, I do think that we're likely to continue to see some ripple effects here. And particularly in light of the fact that, that I think the third thing that we really have to keep in mind is that the economic consequences of COVID are still unfolding, right? Like we're still seeing that there are families who are facing increasing food insecurity, who are facing livelihood losses, even today. So by a lot of projections, for example, according to the UN, they're expecting close to 50 million women and girls to fall into extreme poverty as a result of the pandemic. And so I think in the financial inclusion space, we really need to be asking ourselves more than ever how we're ensuring that the financial services that we support and that we're focused on really enable livelihood choice, livelihood security, are really focused on the most vulnerable. Um, in some cases, that's women, but also thinking about other marginal populations. And so I think we really have to challenge ourselves to double down on that, you know, even more than we did prior to the pandemic. And that really is a bit of a kind of killer stat in terms of 50 million women and girls predicted to fall back into poverty or into poverty for the first time, potentially, due to the pandemic. And leads me really onto the final question for our conversation today, which is, you know, as part of the Gates Foundation, what are your future plans? Where do you see you, you guys going? So I think like everyone else, we're trying to figure out where we can be the most impactful. Certainly we'll continue a lot of the work that we're working on, which is around these basic building blocks. Like we, again, I think in a lot of ways, the pandemic confirmed for us that, you know, until populations have universal access to financial services, ID systems that include everyone, reliable payment infrastructure, um, good cash access points nationally. You know, if, if you're unable to include everyone in that system, you're unable to use it kind of for full equity and, and full financial inclusion. So I think we'll continue to work in close partnership with governments and other development partners on some of those basics. And then in addition to that, you know, definitely starting to uh, intensify our work on women's financial inclusion and think about kind of what are those opportunities for the millions of people who were onboarded during the pandemic? How can we enable them to get more out of their accounts? And so thinking about what are the different use cases that uh, are really relevant for them also starting to think a lot more about consumer protection and how to make sure that they're protected from fraud and some of the other risks that come with moving into digital accounts for the first time. And Snigda, the final words to you, where do you see your work going next as well? We really need to have more data and information about the gaps of where we can, again, bring some more impact and support the country governments and other stakeholders to really be more inclusive in their policies and et cetera. And a lot of research already has been ongoing, but we also need to just be mindful about getting more information so that it's a more aware and more concerned and more knowledgeable intervention decisions that we can plan on. Well, on those mega trends, mega insights, a massive thank you, Maria and Snigda, for joining me today and sharing so wisely 
um, all those thoughts on the digital payments. And as I mentioned before, I will put all the links into the words that sit alongside this so that you can follow up and get involved. So Maria Sinta, thank you very much. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 